Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading again verses 11 through 16. Hear now God's Word. And He Himself, that is Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. When people diminish or dismiss the importance of the church, they are claiming to know better than Jesus does what is good for them. Many have devalued the church. They have rationalized or justified. They have devalued it by corruption. It has been devalued by corruption within both leadership and laity. It's devalued by a lack of understanding of its import, her importance and place in the world and in the life of God's people. It has been trivialized by shallowness and even silliness. It has been compromised by seeking the approval of the world. Indeed, it is thought of as optional by many individual Christians who can take it or leave it since they feel no real sense of obligation to the church. But the Bible teaches us that the church is, in fact, the center of the world. It is the nursery of the kingdom of God. It's the most important institution on earth because it's the people of God and it is the pillar and the ground of the truth. With the church and through the church, societies live and die, rise and fall. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his bride. The church is the household of God. Many pictures that were given in the Bible, all of which point to the the importance and the centrality of the church. Jesus gave the church, as we learned last week and as we read in this text again this morning, the extraordinary gifts of the apostles and the prophets, which are infallibly preserved in the Bible. And he gave the ordinary routine gifts of evangelists and of pastors and teachers. He is the giver and we are the receivers of these essential gifts. These are not superfluous. They, they are not given as just bonus things, take it or leave it. But Jesus believed that we needed these things if we were to be what he's calling us to be. So the reason Jesus gave all these gifts to the church was in order to perfect the church, to mature the church. The goal is for us 
for you, for me, to be grown-up Christians. And so I ask, as we begin, does that describe you? Or at least does it describe the direction you're headed? One of the ways I find useful to determine that is to at least metaphorically look in the rearview mirror. Look behind you. Look over your shoulder. Look at the last six months. Look at the last year and say, have I grown? Sometimes it's hard to, for me to look out the door and, and see whether the grass grew since last night. But if I'm gone for a week and I come back and I see it, it's pretty obvious that it's grown. Or if I see a child that I haven't seen, and I, I do this every year when I go to Summer Sanctus to camp, and I see young teenagers who've had a year to grow since I've seen them last. And I often, uh, because there's so many, for one thing, uh, I, think, I, kn- I think I know who that is, but I'm not quite certain because they've changed so much in that period of time. So looking behind you this past year is a good way to kind of get a sense of am I maturing as a Christian? Am I making progress? The Apostle Paul states this negatively when he says in verse 14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, every idea that's out there by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So that's the negative. Stop being children. We don't want you to remain as children. It's okay to be a baby if you are a baby. It's okay to be a little child if that's where you're at in, the, in beginning your Christian walk, but that's not the goal. That's not the stopping place. You're to no longer be children. And then he states it more positively in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. When we, that is when the church, loses sight of this primary and essential goal, then the church becomes subject to all kinds of distractions and even foolishness. An immature church, like an immature person, has many problems. Defective views of the church make the church dysfunctional and a subject of many worldly methods and goals. So this morning, I want us to just very simply... Look at uh, this verse here in verse, uh, uh, verse 12. I want us to see the, the, the simple goals or the simple things that are set before us that are the objects of the ministry, objects of the apostles and prophets, that is the Bible, as well as evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And what are those? The equipping of the saints, the work of ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. The officers have been given, these gifts have been given to the church in order to accomplish these goals. That is central. So let's look at these one by one. Let's begin with the word saint. That would be you. Every church member is a saint. We've allowed the Roman Catholic misconception of a saint to influence us. But throughout the New Testament, church members are addressed as saints. So it would be a serious error for you to ever say something like, well, I'm no saint. Yes, you are. You may not be acting like one in the mo- at the moment, 
may not be acting like a Christian, like a believer, a follower of Jesus, but if you're a baptized follower of Jesus, a part of his body, then you have been set apart. That's what a saint is, a holy one. Someone who has been set apart from the world and placed into the body of Christ. That is what a saint is. Someone sanctified from the world. And that's why it's important for there to be a clear demarcation between you and the world. Everyone ought to see, by the way you talk, by the way you dress, by your attitude, by your customs or habits, your behavior, it ought to be obvious to everyone that you're a saint. Again, this term is used throughout the Old Testament to describe mountains or buildings or vessels that were set apart unto God. They were special. At our house, uh, Marinelle inherited her mother's special dishes, the china. So when we built the house, we built a china cabinet to put them in, to set them apart so they weren't mingled with those common dishes. They're above all that. And they're set apart, and they are of a nature that when we get them out, uh, the first thing the children would ask when they were little is, who's coming? What's the occasion? Why are we using the fancy dishes? But you got that picture that these have been set apart. They're kept separate from the others because they have a special purpose. They are for fancy meals. They are for special occasions. And you are a holy people, a peculiar people. You have been set apart for God's special or holy use. We are no longer profane. And the word profane just means outside the temple. We're in the temple. We're in the church. Peter describes us, us this way in 1 Peter 2, 9-10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. One of the reasons so many people are abandoning the church today is because they can no longer tell the difference between the church and the world. It becomes so watered down that it's tasteless. In Dorothy Sayers' book, Creed or Chaos, she writes this. Let us, in heaven's name, drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it and set it on an open stage to startle the world into some sort of vigorous reaction. If the pious are the first to be shocked, so much the worse for the pious. Others will enter the kingdom of heaven before them. If all men are offended because of Christ, let them be offended. But where is the sense of their being offended at something that is not Christ and is nothing like him? We do him singularly little honor by watering down his personality till it could not offend a fly. Surely it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but to adapt men to Christ. It is the dogma, that is the teaching, the doctrine, that is the drama. 
Not beautiful phrases or comforting sentiments, not vague aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death showed that to the heathen and they may not uh, show that to the heathen and they may not believe it but at least they may realize that there is something that a man might be glad to believe now these saints if they are to construct this building You saints, if you're to construct the building that you're called to construct, will need some tools. You will need to be equipped. The word equipping can also be translated perfection, or I think a good equivalent of that is maturing or mature. The idea here is that something is made ready for service. I pulled out some old wood chisels uh, the other day and went to work on them to make them as close to razor sharp as I have the ability to do. A dull chisel, like a dull Christian, is useless. Sometimes we need more tools. At least that's what I tell my wife when it comes to my shop. Sometimes we need the tools that we have to be repaired or tuned or sharpened. Sometimes we need our skills in using those tools to be improved. That's the work of the church. Paul said this to the Christians in the church at Colossae. Him we preach, that is Jesus we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man, and there's that word, perfect or mature in Christ. Grown up. William Still, in his book, The Work of the Pastor, said this. All that, remember, we're thinking about this text in the context of the the apostles and prophets, the Bible, then delivered by way of evangelists, pastors, and teachers on a regular basis in the church. Jesus gave those gifts in order to equip you. He says this, All that many... Spiritually sick people need is a good balanced diet and a disciplined routine. My, he's speaking as a pastor, my principal surgery, clinic, vestry hour, consulting room or counseling room, call it what you will, is the pulpit and the teaching desk. If in the end I cannot get people to see this, I despair of them ever becoming what Christ means for them to be. They will certainly never become the satisfied, happy, and more important, useful people that they could be. And so, I have to say, and I know half of our congregation is out today, um, so uh, like all sermons, you know, the pastor puts it out there and we rely on the Holy Spirit to deliver it to each person individually. So I'll just say this. I do, as a pastor, and I think most pastors could echo this, I have deep concerns for some of you. I'm concerned that for some, I'm concerned for some because it appears that you are dull of hearing. You're friendly, you're nice, I really love you, I like you, I want the best for you, but 
I'm concerned that sometimes you don't take this as seriously as you should. Not as earnestly as you should. You don't think, uh, you don't think, um, or, or you think that perhaps church and the Bible and all of this is there for emergencies. When something really bad happens, then we get our Bibles out and then we, we, we what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? And, you know, the work of the church is, is like raising kids. Again, it's every day. It's brush your teeth, comb your hair, take a bath, eat your meal, eat your vegetables, clean up, let's start all over again tomorrow. And we do this over and over and over so that you're healthy, so that you're ready, so that you can fight off those things that are coming your way. You don't wait till they show up. You know, it, it, you have to be prepared ahead. But it's also critical to understand that this, that is this work of Christ in the church, is not all about you. The Bible isn't given just to make you happy and to make everything go swell in your life. And that's part of the problem. I think we live in a culture and a time that everyone's focused on themselves, too much so. And then, then I tell you what, we're broken. And if you're focused on you, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be discouraged if this is all up to you. If there's nothing on the outside working on you, changing you, shaping you, building you up, doing something for you that you cannot do for yourself, then that's discouraging. So that's the first part, equipping the saints. That's what the church is here for. Second, the work of ministry. Being useful is what you're called to be. You have a place of ministry or service in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God and in the world. That's why God put you here. If he was just trying to save you to go to heaven, he'd save you and just take you to heaven. But he hadn't taken you to heaven yet, he left you here. And he left you here to do something. When you embrace fully who you are in Christ, meaning self-denial, meaning cross-bearing, dying to yourself, then happiness will follow. Joy most often comes through the back door. Peter describes the work of God in our daily lives like this in 1 Peter 1. He's been talking about, in the first part of that chapter, about salvation, God saving us. And so he says, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, and apparently it's necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So God's doing something in that. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or when it's all over, at the end of the show, at the end of the story. Whom, having not seen, you love. And though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice Now remember the context of this, trials, suffering, fire, now for a little while if necessary, 
What does he say? May be found a result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God saved you not simply to do something for you, but to do something in you and to do something with you. One of the great problems of the church is that many expect it to serve them rather than the other way around. A few years ago, Pastor Rich Lusk and I did a series of lectures in Florida, and it was turned into a book called The Church-Friendly Family. It was a play on a popular movement on the, church, on the family-friendly church. But in that... We argue that the emphasis is not on what the church can do for you, but rather on what you can do for the church. One of the fastest ways to overcome personal depression, and I'm going to pause here a moment because I know many of you struggle with personal depression. I do too. have most of my life. And I remember years ago, Now, sometimes I know why I'm depressed. I took antihistamines. Or I didn't get enough sleep. Or something really bad's going on, and there's a lot of stress. I know there's a direct connection, and sometimes there's just a general malaise. Because we're broken people. But I remember Dr. J. Adams pointing out, and I found it to be true, that the fastest way to overcome depression of all sorts is to get busy serving someone else. Do something for somebody else. Stop thinking about you. Most depression is a pity party. Poor me. Stop thinking about you. Think about someone else. So, one of the primary purposes of the offices of the church is equipping her members with God's Word, which is able as Paul tells Timothy, to make you wise unto salvation, but also is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. And and here the verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, that the man of God may be complete, mature, perfect, thoroughly equipped, For every good work. Now, if the Bible, the apostles and prophets, delivered to you by evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is able to do all of that, to give you doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, and to thoroughly equip you for every good work, what else do you need? Do you need need something added to that? Peter exhorts in 1 Peter 2.2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, why? That you may grow thereby. So even if you're a baby, the way to grow is the word of God. The living word of God is a remarkable book, unlike any other book. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And how did He make all things? With His Word. Let there be light, and there was light. 
That's the power of his word, the creative word. So the opening of the book of Genesis, the creation of the material world, is done by his word. The opening of the book, Gospel of John, a book about our salvation, about the new creation, about us and what God's doing for us, is also about the power of his word. We read in Hebrews 1.3, Who being the brightness of his glory, talking about Jesus, in the express image of his person, and up, upholding all things, that's a pretty inclusive term, right? By the power of his word. That's you, that's me, that's all of our problems, that's everything. His word is the thing that will sustain us, that will enable us. It is the tool. Jesus said that we were to build our houses upon the rock of his word. It's the same word which is from the apostles and prophets, delivered, as I said, by evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that equips you to do what? What is your ministry? Paul tells us in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, take up residence in you, live in you, that means it can't be on the shelf in, a, in, a, in between two covers of a book. It has to be in you. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. See, see what's happening? You're given the Word. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Then what do you do with it? Now you're going to give it to others in the church. You're going to speak it. You're going to sing it. You're going to use it to admonish. You're going to use it to teach, admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That is your ministry. We've got to get the word in you so it can get out of you and do what it does. You see how it all ties together. What you learn here when you eagerly and readily receive the Word, then you take that home and you start ministering it to the others in your family and to your neighbors. And you certainly use it to minister to one another as needs arise. And as I said, the Word of God is a remarkable book. The Holy Spirit, think about this, actively applies it to each one according to our needs in every circumstance. I hope you've had that delightful but somewhat frightening experience of thinking that the pastor followed you around all week before he worked on his sermon. He was talking to me. I know he was. How did he know that? Um, I had a, I remember occasion many years ago, someone else was preaching uh, one of the other elders in a church I was in, and a member of the church, her sister, came from out of town to visit. No one knew she was, in fact, she didn't know that she was coming until Sunday morning and had not told anyone her sister was coming, and this elder delivered a sermon, and this woman's sister was quite upset. She didn't create a scene, but later she complained, accusing her sister of having called the pastor and told him about her life. Uh, so that he could deliver that particular sermon. Well, that's how the Holy Spirit works. 
And so if you ever ask that question, was that sermon for me? The answer is, of course it was. The Word of God does all kinds of work. Think about it. And and so you read a passage one time on a sunny day, and you get something out of it, and you read that same passage on a cloudy day, and something else comes to you. Or you read it when you were 20, and you read it again when you're 30 or 40 or 50, and different things God does. Why? Because the Word of God is living. It warns, it convicts, it rebukes, it comforts. It encourages, it instructs, it it admonishes, it does all of that and more, and it does it simultaneously to a congregation. For everyone who listens with open hearts and open ears, God speaks to you and equips you for service or ministry to others. God's Word speaks to the mind and to the heart. It is not just there to amuse the intellectually curious or to satisfy the sentimental. God intends to equip the whole person. And then finally, the third thing is the edifying of the body in Christ. The ultimate objective of being equipped and the result of the work of ministry is the building up or the edifying of the body of Christ. Church must be more than a preaching station. She must not be a place of entertainment. Even in the first century, the Apostle Paul warned of the dangers of drifting in our central missions, drifting away from our central mission. Here's what he said. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord. Now, this is Paul's parting words to his spiritual son, Timothy. Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. He's probably in his mid-thirties. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. (coughs) Preach the Word. Be ready. In season. Out of season. Good times, bad times. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Your ministry doesn't change. It doesn't matter what's going on around you or in you or anything else. You have one calling, and that's to deliver the Word of God, unadulterated, 16 ounces to the pound, straight up the middle. It's not new to our age. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, and this is just an excerpt from a longer piece that he wrote. Talking about the 1860s or so. An evil, an evil is in the professed camp of the Lord so gross in its impudence that the most short sighted can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, it has developed at an abnormal rate even for evil. 
It has worked like a leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. From speaking out as the Puritans did, the church has gradually toned down her testimony, then winked at it, winked, winked at and excused the frivolous the frivolous the frivolities, excuse me, of the day. Then she tolerated them in her borders. Now she has adopted them under the plea of reaching the masses. Had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular when they went back because of the searching, when they turned, turned back, because of the searching nature of his teaching. I do not hear him say, run after those people, Peter, and tell them we will have a different style of service tomorrow, something short and attractive. And so, excuse me for a moment, my page is stuck here. Excuse me, he, he continues to finish that quote. We will have a pleasant evening for the people, Peter. Tell them they will be sure and enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get people here somehow. It's an age-old problem, one that we saw in the Old Testament as well. Ezekiel, God speaking through him, apparently he was quite eloquent. He says, as for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear the word that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will, as surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So the mission is quite simple. Grow up, as I've often said about raising children. Really, you're raising adults. That's the goal. Our marriages, excuse me, to, to become like Christ in the way we live. That's what it means to grow up. And so our marriages are to be pictures of that relationship. If they're not, if your marriage is not a picture of this, then it's because you are immature and in need of being further equipped with the Word of God. You're not Applying the Word of God in the way you speak to one another, in the way you resolve conflicts, in the way you live. It's, it's as simple as that. I didn't say it's easy, but it is quite simple. You have to take the Bible seriously. The whole body, the whole church is counting on you to do your part to edify and build up the body. We represent Christ to the world. This is what they see. They see our congregation. They see you, they see your marriage, they see your children. This is why we come apart and assemble on the first day of each week. 
Christian schools, my involvement with Christian schools, I, I notice this, and I know others in that field see this, that there are many different reasons parents send, send, send their children to a Christian school. Very few have given much thought to its philosophy or mission, and some of the reasons people send their children there are bad ones. But schools know that without a family on the other side, then their work is not likely to succeed. Church is the same way. Being baptized, going to church, being a member of a church is not enough. Hearing a sermon on prayer, tithing, hospitality, worship, evangelism, marriage, service, not enough. And since the work of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers is the spreading and inculcation of God's word into his people, and since the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry is why you are here today, and since the ultimate goal is the edifying or building up of the body of Christ, I simply ask, are you ready for that work? Today is practice. We have gathered in this huddle, but now it's time to head out and do our part in the body of Christ. I close with this summary from James chapter 1. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes, observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that is the Bible, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this is the one who will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us and for transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of your love. Thank you for purchasing the church with your own blood and for giving the church your word and faithful men to deliver it to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the word and applying it to us, that by it we may grow. Help us to love your church and to live accordingly. Help us to mature and become more and more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It is it's not uncommon for me to receive compliments about our church. I received a number of them at the uh, wedding reception um, this past, in the last weekend. Um, which means, by the way, that you are being complimented. You are saints, and I've had the privilege of watching most of you grow and make progress in your maturity in Christ. And so, uh, since the goal, though, is perfection, you've still got a ways to go. Um, I have a long way to go. We have work to do. Um, Sometimes as I come to a passage like this, which... I say that, but it seems like most of the passages are like this. They're hard. They, they're probing. They, they, they dig deep, and they hurt sometimes uh, as we hear them and, and hear the word preached. <clears throat> but I think it is important to always put that in context. 
that's a good thing if we understand what's going on, that God is exposing, God loves us, and God is perfecting. He's at work. He's improving. He's revealing and showing things to us perhaps that we haven't seen before, stirring us up, motivating us. And so, um, and so again, here we are on a Sunday, first day of the week, uh, starting all over, uh, remembering, renewing, and hopefully moving forward. As we think about this coming week, which is beginning with communion, uh, communion with the triune God and with the church, I want to ask, what can you do as you renew covenant today and make plans? What can you do to add to your maturity? How can you get more of God's Word in you? When's the last time you memorized some Scripture? Are you reading your Bible? Do you know your Bible? Read books about the Bible so that it's getting in. But don't let it stop there. It also, of course, has to get out. How can you digest the nutrition of that Word? How can you apply it? How can you make use of it in your life? One way to do that is to think about some area where you do struggle. You know, if it's anger or patience or diligence or whatever it is, there's a good place to start. Tackle a sin. Tackle a problem, an area where you need to grow and learn some Bible. Get it in you so it's ready, so it's there, so you can tap into that and make use of that powerful living Word. Um, And having been nourished, then the question is, how can you then minister to others? How do you add, for example, to the communion at your house? How do you improve your marriage? How do you improve your child rearing? How do you improve your hospitality? Whatever it is in Christ. And finally, I want to urge you to look for ways to edify or build up the body of Christ. You see, if we all do little things, we're not just spectators, but participants, we all do little things, prayers, conversations, labors, hospitality, letters, exhortations, thank yous. There's a a zillion little ways that we can help one another. Look outside your immediate circle. Look across the room. Talk to somebody today you haven't talked to in a while. Just have a pleasant, how-do-you-do conversation. That may not seem like much, and I do want you to add to that and not stop there, But that's how we build the body. We build those relationships. And so we little by little advance the work of God's eternal kingdom. Well, Lord our God, we bow humbly before the majesty of your throne and acknowledge that we are unworthy to come except as we come through Christ and his righteousness. We are highly blessed to be your servants and extremely privileged to be able to participate in your glorious work. Not one of us can boast of our own ability to serve you, nor proclaim any contribution to your kingdom apart from your grace. You allow us to plant and water, and you alone, O Lord, can give the increase. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. You meet every need we have. You feed us and satisfy our thirst. Comfort and protect us. Indeed, You have prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies, and our cup runneth over. You have placed us in your church. What a blessing to be in the household of God. Now, Lord, as we seek to faithfully serve you and your people, we again acknowledge our own inadequacy 
And we ask that you would fill us up, that you would build us up, that you would grow us up. Lord, bless now our feast and our fellowship and our rest today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Amen.